Greetings, and welcome to the Matt Asher Radio Show, coming at you from Moray Bay Studios, where the waters are shallow and the conversations are deep. Each week on the show, we explore the unknown knowns, the fringes of science and culture, the borderlands between truth and possibility. If you happen to be in South Florida, you might be listening to this show live at 6 p.m. on Saturdays on Keys Talk 96.9 or 102.5 FM. If so, please note that every episode is also uploaded after Afterwards to mattasher.com and available on our podcast feed, including the one where I talk about two-headed dogs and floating monkey brains. Do a search for The Filter on your favorite podcast app. During my first radio episode, I gave an explanation of the show's focus, and if you missed it, look for the one titled Tim Zimmerman on Death in a Deep Black Hole, and you'll get not only an intro to what the show is about, but also a gripping story of underwater corpse recovery I highly recommend. So I've explained the show, but I haven't told you who I am, and some of you have been asking... Okay, one of you asked. More specifically, this person who shall go unnamed sent me an email, and you are welcome to send an email to me at mattasher.com. That's M-E at mattasher.com. This person sent me a message that said, love your show, but you know how that works, right? I wonder, and as promised in that very first intro episode, there will be some digressions today, But I wonder if that's a universal thing or something peculiar to our culture, the whole setting people up with a compliment only to hit them with the butt. Did the ancient Romans say things like, Tiberius, I love your new 20-foot spear, but the breastplate you engraved with images of mermaids frolicking, highly inappropriate, bro. Maybe you could cover that up with something? Why the ancient Romans spoke in a bad Russian accent, this is anybody's guess. But speaking of mermaids, and before I forget to mention this, on August 19th, that's August 1-9, The Matt Asher Show, we'll have our very first live event, and you need to attend if you are anywhere near South Florida. I'll be talking with Dr. Vaughn Scribner about his fascinating book, Mer People, A Human History. Visit morebay.com slash tickets for more info, and you guessed it, tickets. You don't want to miss this, especially the uncensored audience Q&A at the end. But getting back to the whole love your show but thing, in this case, the but was essentially, and reading between the lines, though not very far between the lines because it wasn't particularly hard, who the hell are you? I did a Google search and the results came back kind of weird. Experimental fiction, domain names, journalism, statistics, an essay about locksmiths? What's your deal? I suppose I should have expected this. People stalk, and digital stalking is the easiest stalking of all. Not that I blame you, Mrs. Anonymous Emailer. I, too, have used Google to find out important information about strangers, like where they went to school, their net worth, or what their partners look like. Admit it. You've done that, too. Maybe I can't answer the question, what's your deal?, But I can let listeners know what is my story, or at least tell a couple of stories so you get some idea of who I am and how it is that I came to be talking to you every week on Keys Talk FM. I'm going to get to a few of these stories today, including, if you are lucky, the one about how I ended up buying a house in the Keys sight unseen, or how I traded a wigwam to three Indians for two ducks. And yes, that is a true story. 
but I can't say for sure that I'll get to those because I'm not planning this out and bios can be boring. So instead of recapping everything I've done since I was a two foot tall toddler chasing the cat in my underoos, I'm just going to start talking about my past and let's see where this goes, which makes this episode for me the perfect unknown known. Let's start way back in 1991. I had just left high school and I was heading off to college to learn how to build cars. I was very into them and interested in engineering in general, how things work and how things were put together. I was one of those kids who took apart every item in my room that could be unscrewed, though I should also note I was one of those kids who didn't always succeed in putting them back together again. Make of that what you will. At any rate, I ended up at my hometown school, the University of Illinois, home of the Fighting Illini, named after the Illiniwick tribe. It also happened to be a school that, according to the rankings, had a decently well-regarded engineering program. I went there to learn how to build cars, but that's not how things turned out. Most of what I learned instead was much more abstract and not in a foundational way, but more in a I-don't-see-what-this-has-to-do-with-anything way, and no one seemed at all eager to explain what the connection was between the syllabus and the outer world of engineering. Some of the classes seemed connected to what I wanted to do, but most of them were... There's a Spanish expression, nada que ver, that comes to mind, and maybe I'll get to how I know that expression but it means essentially not relevant. So I burnt out on that, and after a year and a half, I was done and ready to drop out or do something else completely. One possibility was, and I kid you not, opening a batting cage near campus. I was within inches of that before my potential financier got cold feet from a a liability standpoint. And in, in retrospect, I can see how a lawyer might have second thoughts about drunken college kids swinging bats at 90 mile per hour fastballs. It was, though, the most excited I'd been about anything during college. I even had a kick-ass logo designed for it, which I think holds up exceptionally well even today. Maybe that was a sign that I should be doing something else instead of engineering, and that's what I ended up trying to do. After failing at engineering, I moved over to art school with the intention of making it into the subset of that program focused on industrial design. My thinking was, basically, maybe I can't get a degree in building cars, but I could learn how to design them and and other things. So I spent an intensive few months building up a portfolio so I could apply to that design program. As I went, I grew increasingly excited about the idea. I would never say that I had much talent for drawing like most kids. I spent my share of time doodling, but would never consider what I had created to be real art in any sense. Not that I have anything against fine art. I am a very big fan of the lowbrow art movement, and maybe at some point I'll get a chance to have someone on this show who is a part of that. But my own talented uh, in terms of artistically was much more limited. My focus was on products, commercial things, and designing things that were bought and sold, though not necessarily processed. So I spent a lot of time trying to create a portfolio to properly apply to that program.
program. I worked hard at it. I went straight through spring break. I only had two or three months to build up this portfolio instead of the seven to eight that many other students had because they had entered the program at the beginning of the year and I entered uh, the art program at the middle. But by the time I was done, I was proud of the portfolio and the effort I'd put into it. I thought there was some really good creative and technically solid work in there. My advisor, who helped me pick out items for the portfolio and gave me feedback, seemed genuinely pleased with the portfolio and said it had some good stuff and was confident about my submission. And I was confident this was my new path, not engineering, but not that far removed from it. I submitted my portfolio, and maybe you've guessed from the lead-in, I did not make it. Declined, rejected, no soup for you. I was crushed, disappointed, and thrown into something of a confused state. What was I going to do? So what I did do was flee, or more specifically, I took a delayed spring break. I hopped in my Honda Civic Si hatchback, which as an aside is a perfect first real car to have, much better than the death trap yellow Ford Pinto with red plaid interior and a broken transmission, which I briefly inherited and used from a distant relative who had moved to Florida and given up driving in her old age. Uh, The car, the Civic that is, a standard model uh, stick shift transmission, didn't even come with a stereo at first. I had to wait until I had money for that and could convince one of my old high school friends to help me with the install to save on that cost. He was one of those guys with a small lowered pickup that he'd pimped out with so much bass it could liquefy your lower intestines. I opted for something more basic stereo-wise and listened to whatever you could get on the radio and fly over country back then for most of the trip to Florida and especially on the way back when I'd been up for 24 hours straight and had to blast the volume and stick my head out the window to stay awake. At any rate, I spent some time there on the beach at Daytona, which is... Well, there's a good chance you're hearing this in Florida and you know what those beaches are like. They are both lovely and and not so lovely. I hung out on those beaches, got a sunburn, slept uncomfortably in the back of my car, and I don't think I could figure out why anyone would pay for a hotel room just to sleep until my mid-twenties when my first real adult girlfriend convinced me that it really was worth the hundred dollars. I did end up going back to school and finishing up the semester even after my rejection, but that was it for the University of Illinois. I finally left my hometown and headed to Chicago, and maybe someday I'll tell the story of how I almost made it there back in high school by hopping a freight train. Before I pick up with the biography, and you are listening to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk, and I'm talking about myself today. I should note that the trip to Daytona was the first time I ended up in Florida as something close to an adult, though like almost everyone else, I'd gone to Florida as a kid to visit my grandparents at their winter place. I now live in the Keys, but I also lived briefly in two other Florida towns in my early 20s. I lived in Palatka, which is a lovely little swampy town, and I also lived in very briefly anyway, in St. Augustine. This was many, many years ago, before I wandered off to South America, to Cochabamba, Bolivia specifically. 
maybe the bio will just be more interesting if I bounce around a little bit instead of doing it linearly. My brain doesn't always work in a linear fashion anyway. But I did enjoy both my time in Swampy Palatka. My cat in particular enjoyed the time there because it was an all-you-can-chase-and-eat buffet of those little lizards that we have all over the place down here. She very much enjoyed that part. And I did too. It was a very big change. We had come from Vermont where we spent most of the winter taking care of a little cottage next to a barn in Vermont for a friend of my ex-wife and a friend of mine as well by then at a, it's a tiny little time there. Maybe there were 300 people in Vermont. Vermont is a really cool place in a lot of ways. I would say that if you're up there, if you live in that area, you have to appreciate that they have these wonderful little general stores and you can get just about anything at the general stores. Often you can get prepared sandwiches, deli sandwiches, pizza, that kind of thing. And also the regular things that you'd get at any convenience store. Really a neat system to have that I haven't seen anywhere else. They don't seem to have it here in Florida. They just have the regular kind of convenience stores here in the Keys, but nothing quite like that. I think there's something to be in a place that's so isolated where you end up having these very friendly and bountiful pockets in what is otherwise a cold and isolated world. But we enjoyed our time there, and after that, it was time to go, so we knew we were headed down to South America. As I say, we eventually made it to Cochabamba, Bolivia, but there remained the problem of how to get down to Florida. I had a bike, a, a motorcycle, a Yamaha Seca 2. It had been in storage, but it was time to get it out of storage, fire it up, and get it going. So towards the end of winter, maybe early April, which is still very cold in Vermont, I packed it up and brought it down to Florida where we were going to keep it while we were away in South America. But I also had a cat and I needed to bring her down. So I don't actually remember why she was coming with me, but she was and not my ex. I built a little box, wooden box for her, a travel accommodation on the back of the motorcycle. And I decorated it, painted it, put some coloring, a map. And then I popped my cat in that little box on the back of the bike. And we together took the thousand mile plus journey from Vermont down to Florida, which was a very cool trip. I can't say that the cat loved it, but it was a nice transition from the icy cold of Vermont to the tropical heat of Palatka, Florida. Made the whole trip without any incidents, stopped along the way at hotels, saw family, enjoyed some sightseeing, and then finally made it all the way down to Palatka. This was at the very end of this thousand-mile journey and pulled in for the very first time to this rural location and the pavement gave way to a kind of gravel and then pressed dirt, and then the pressed dirt gave way to some sandy tracks, and pretty soon I found myself in a deep rut, one of two where the car's tires went, and as I slowed to a stop, I fell over. Nothing dangerous, nothing harsh, but 
falling over nonetheless at two or three miles per hour, not very fun and certainly not fun for the cat who by then I'm sure had had enough on the back of the bike. So I let her out and she was very happy to be out and there and done with the journey and on to chasing those little lizards for the next couple months in the tropical heat. That was it for the journey. We spent a couple months in Palatka in the swamps, moved over to St. Augustine, which for those who don't know is a cute and historic little town, which also has a seedy touristy area as well, right on the coast in northern Florida. I recommend visiting. There are lots of good restaurants to be uh, to be had. So we were there, and then we headed on down to South America to, as I say, Cochabamba, Bolivia. For those who don't know much about Bolivia, and that's everybody, Cochabamba is a city of about 700,000 people. It's right in the heart of Bolivia. And for those who just joined us, I am Matt Asher. This is The Matt Asher Show. And I am talking about myself because a listener asked me to and because almost none of you know who I am. We get down to Cochabamba, this city of about 700,000 in the heart of Bolivia, which is a landlocked country, more or less in the middle of South America, brought my cat down there as well. Another stressful ride for her, though not as long, on the plane, but no issues there. Got her out and down, and us out and down, and we lived for the first couple months there with a family in Cochabamba. This is part of a program to learn Spanish. They embed you with a local family. The people in Cochabamba don't really speak English, or the English they speak is so horrendous that even after a couple weeks down there, my own Spanish, which began effectively at zero, was good enough that I preferred to speak to them in my broken Spanish than their horrible, horrible English, which is really a benefit if you think about it in terms of immersion. You don't really want a crutch to fall back upon of being able to communicate with the locals in your native language. If you do that, your uptake is much slower. So my uptake was fairly quick, especially given that, that I didn't have an opportunity to talk to them in English. I did have the opportunity to talk to my wife in English, and we did, and I suppose that slowed adoption of Spanish somewhat. But nonetheless, within about a year, I was writing a column for the local newspaper down there and conducting business in Spanish with the locals, which was a terrible, terrible idea because... It's a very poor country, and because if you are able to find any way to make money down there, everybody else will rush into that same field. At the time, I was doing web design. The only real money I made was teaching other people to do web design. The classes I taught brought in a little bit of money. The web design I did, it really didn't even cover the rent. Fortunately, the rent was cheap, and fortunately, living down there was extremely cheap. That was part of the reason that we chose Cochabamba. You could get a full lunch with your salad, your main dish, and a little bit of a, a postre, a little dessert for one U.S. dollar at the time. Don't 
know what it would be today. I need to say some more about the food down there. It's worth talking about and and also talking about a, a drink called chicha. So I will take that back up after the break. You are listening to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk FM. The music you're hearing is Wistuvida, or Crooked Life, which seems to be the theme of this show today. I am Matt Asher, and this is the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk FM. We are, at the moment, in Cochabamba, Bolivia, where the alcoholic drink of choice is chicha, which I drank regularly while I'm down there. And I'm going to try to give a radio-friendly version of what chicha is and how it's made, but be warned. You start with corn, and it's not just the kind of corn that's the small kernels that you have here as corn on the cob, the sweet corn. It's the corn that they eat down there, which is the kind of corn that we feed to animals. They feed to their animals the kind of corn we eat, the sweet corn. What they're eating is the harder, chewier, and in my view, blander corn, but it is the corn they prefer down there. Actually, the fact that it has less flavor is a benefit in certain dishes. They have these wonderful dishes with fried llama, charque de llama, I think it's called, and I might be getting hungry here, but they have this fried llama dish, which is crispy, but yet still kind of melts in your mouth, shredded llama that's been fried deeply, and you... It's salted to hell. So you mix that with some of this corn, which doesn't have much flavor by itself. And you also mix it with a little bit of queso fresco, which is just, if you know any Spanish, fresh cheese. But it's a particular kind of fresh cheese that is white and soft. And it combines pretty well with those other things, the charque de llama and other salty things, which themselves combine well with that kind of bland, chewy corn. So chicha, the drink, it's a fermented drink made out of those large, bland corn kernels, primarily. But in order to ferment something, you need to get the fermentation process kick-started. And this corn, as I've mentioned, it doesn't have a lot of flavor or sugar. So how do you kick-start the enzymatic process, if that is indeed the right word, of turning this corn into a, an alcoholic drink. And keep in mind, as I'm doing this, I'm doing this from memory. I'm not re-looking up the recipe for chicha. If so, if I get things wrong, well, you should probably verify the recipe before attempting to make chicha at home. And I do recommend an attempt at that. It's on my own bucket list to see if I can recreate it. But, but you'll see why I might hesitate as we get closer to the full recipe. So you start with these kernels of corn and you have to bootstrap the enzymatic process. How do you do that? You can do it chemically, but traditionally the way it's done is by chewing the corn into this kind of mass, this ball. So 
that's what is done, women, and it's traditionally something that's done by women. They're the ones who make the chicha. They take the corn, they put it in their mouth, and they chew it into this kind of ground, slightly wet meal. They'll make these balls out of it, and then they'll set those balls aside. The enzymes in your mouth are beginning to digest the corn, kick-starting the process. After that, there's a lot of boiling that happens, so it's going to be put into a big earthen pot and boiled, and it will ferment a bit over time. And then there's one more ingredient that is rumored to be put in there. How do I put this? There's not any real delicate way to do it. It's poop. It's feces. Small, hard poop from a kid, perhaps, that also seems to have to go into the pot as it's boiling. Now, this is a rumor that this happens, and maybe it's just something that they tell the dumb gringos because they're gullible, but I don't think so because I've read certain things about preparation, and it does mention that in the folklore of Cochabamba in the books that explain some of the rituals and practices of the people there over time, but nor could I tell you exactly what it is that that would do to the process. Maybe there's some chemist in our audience who can explain it. Nonetheless, it is said to go in the big pot, and maybe there's some comfort in the fact that it's boiled and boiled and boiled. You certainly wouldn't want to, even after you've exposed your stomach down there to the food in the marketplace, you certainly wouldn't want to just go and drink water that hasn't been purified in some way or boiled. So it's a comfort, I suppose, that the chicha has been boiled after that's been put in and the process of fermentation goes on. Sometimes chicha is made with other things. Sometimes it's fortified with sugar. I don't particularly like that. One of the nice things about the pure chicha drink, and just a moment here to note that you are listening to The Matt Asher Show on Keys Talk Radio. And if you're confused about why I'm talking about chicha, a drink from South America, well, I'm a bit confused about how I got there too, other than it was a part of my life when I lived down there in South America. But getting back to the chicha, it's really a lovely drink as long as they don't put anything in it. The problem with the sugar is that well, first of all, I think it takes away from the taste of the drink itself, which is actually quite lovely in its pure form. And also, you tend to have a bad hangover the next day if it's been fortified with sugar. They do also make flavored version of it, flavored versions of it that have had fruit added or other things. But and I suppose this makes me something of a hipster or hipster mentality, if that's possible down there. But I prefer my chicha the old school way, and I prefer not to think about all the ingredients that go into it. But uh, nonetheless, I prefer the pure chicha. It gives you a different kind of buzz, too. It's a lovely, happy, relaxed kind of buzz. It's not the kind of buzz that you get from, say, well, Every alcohol is different. It's funny how that works out. The buzz you get from wine is different than the buzz you get from whiskey is different than, from the buzz you get from tequila, and it's different from the buzz you get from chicha. One of the nice things about the drink is that it's not particularly strong in alcohol. I would guess that you're looking at something like 4 or 5%, depending on how it's brewed, which means that it's not something that you have to 
just very lightly sip. You can sit down and drink it at a reasonable pace for hours before things start to kick in. Oh, and I absolutely should mention not just the drink itself, but how you drink it. Chicha is traditionally drunk out of a half gourd. So if you imagine a gourd that's been hollowed out and all you have left is the shell, and the shell is, if you put out your hand and you make it into a bowl, and then you imagine that you have a bowl resting in your bowl-shaped hand, and that it extends out maybe an inch in every direction, that's the way, that's the container that Chicha has traditionally served it. And there are chicherias, place where you would go to drink chicha. At those chicherias, there's a particular tradition. You get your gourd, your half gourd of chicha, which will be cheap as dirt. They also have beer down there, of course, which is much more expensive and considered more of a higher class drink. But the chicha will be invariably very cheap. You take the chicha when you've first been served it, when it's been poured out into your gourd, and you pour a small amount of it onto the ground. That is your offering to Pachamama, the the mother god, roughly translated from the Quechua religion. Many of the people there are still Quechua, ethnically and in terms of their language. That's a group that traces its lineage back very far and uh, they are uh, mostly the campesinos, the farmers. They speak uh, sometimes very little English. And if I don't get to it today, maybe one of you out there could remind me to tell the story about the English friar. And I do mean friar as in the guy with the weird robe who was yelling at a Quechua woman once in Cochabamba. But to get back to the chicha, you take that little bit from your gourd and you pour it onto the floor as an offering to Pachamama, and then you drink the rest. It's a lovely ritual. It reminds me of some uh, other ones in other religions. It may not be so lovely for the chicherias there when they end up with sticky floors, but the habit is to have... Uh, either concrete floors or these hard tile floors that they use on top of the cement. So it's not like cleanup is particularly daunting in that kind of a setting, but nonetheless, they do get sticky. So I think I've completely lost the thread at this point where I was going other than to say, chicha, I'm for it, but maybe don't think too hard about what's in it. Ah, Speaking of chicha, another thing they have down there that I enjoyed quite a bit is coca leaves. This, These are the leaves that end up being used in cocaine, but as anyone down there will tell you, emphatically, la coca no es cocaína, the coca leaf isn't cocaine. The practice of putting it in your cheeks and chewing on it goes back, I don't know, thousands of years there. The poor folks, the workers, often the people in the mines especially, they use this as a stimulant to give them energy throughout their day. You can put the leaves in your cheek and kind of chew on them and let the juices go from the leaf into your mouth the same way one would do with chewing tobacco. Or you can consume it in a tea, which was my favorite way to have the coca leaf. I really wish it was legal here to have coca leaf tea because it gives you a nice high that is 
it's not so much a high as it is a gentle kind of push. If you think about something like caffeine, or in particular a high dose of caffeine as giving you a buzz, a kind of electric, anxious, energized, anxiety-filled restlessness, the kind of push that you get from coca leaf tea and from chewing the leaves, which I didn't mind, but it also gave me heartburn, and it will stain and ruin your teeth if you do it over time. But the benefit of the tea, as opposed to caffeine, is that it's a kind of gentle push. If you were to think about it as, say, cocaine itself or high doses of caffeine are like the sun, the coca leaf tea, that's more like the moon. It's a lunar pull, gentle but persistent. Highly recommend if you're down there having some. And it's also indispensable if you are in high altitudes. The city Cochabamba, where I lived, and if you're just joining us, this is the Matt Asher Show, and I'm talking about some biographical elements because it was requested. And right now, I'm talking about Cochabamba, Bolivia, where I lived for a few years. The coca leaf tea, it's an antidote to altitude sickness. The city itself, Cochabamba, is about 8,000 or so feet above sea level, something like that. And when we first lived there, we lived on the upper outskirts. It doesn't actually take you too long to acclimatize to that, or it didn't take me too long. But if you're planning a hike up into the mountains, and the whole thing is surrounded by mountains, including Tunari, you will feel it or Certainly I felt it when I hiked up to 12, 13, 14,000 feet. I also felt it very strongly when I made a bus trip into Chile. The border takes you by Mount Sahama, and another digression here, but if you want to have a model of the perfect mountain peak, just think about Sahama in terms of almost a bell curve where you've got the flat plane and then it gradually comes up and then you have a peak that's rounded and in this lovely, you want to reach out if you could 50 miles or whatever it is. And you see this from so far away, you have no idea how far away it is because the air is so clear. It could be, it could be two miles. It could be a hundred miles away. You really have no idea but you feel like you could reach out your hand and put it on top of the mountain and kind of cup it, give it a little caress. Maybe we're getting inappropriate here, but the top third of it is covered with snow. So it's got this beautiful snow-covered curve. And if you happen to be stopped there on the border with Bolivia and Chile, you are very high up and you will almost certainly, while you're stopped at the border... And all of the stops there, they do sell food and drinks. You will definitely want to have a coca leaf tea because it'll make those feelings of altitude sickness go away. That particular trip across the border from Bolivia to Chile takes you to Arica or to Iquique, which are coastal cities there in 
Chile and really interesting places. It takes you across the Atacama Desert, which is the driest place on Earth. It's one of those places that when NASA is trying to do training for something like a Mars mission, they'll send their people out there to the super dry and have them wander around the high desert in their spacesuits, uh, which must be kind of an interesting thought or an interesting uh, thing to see, just the astronauts there in the middle of the desert uh, that is the bridge, basically, between Bolivia and Chile. Uh, Arica Niquique, these really impressive-looking cities visually. They are tucked against the coast there with a, a huge mountain ridge that rises up right uh, past them and goes up into that Atacama Desert, and they also get very little rain there. And surprisingly, despite the fact that they are pretty close to the equator, the water there is pretty cold, disappointingly cold. Um At any rate, we will have to pick this back up after the break. I am Matt Asher, and you are listening to me on Keys Talk FM. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Show on Keys Talk FM. 1025 and 96.9. I am Matt Asher. We are talking about me today based on a question that I got. Where we left off, I was wandering around Bolivia and South America in general, traveling to Chile and enjoying some of the stimulants down there in South America, including chicha, a corn-based alcoholic drink that gives you a lovely buzz and is a lot of fun to drink given the procedure. A reminder that all of the episodes are wrapped up into a podcast, which often has additional content on it. You can find that at mattasher.com. So if you've missed the beginning of this show or any of the others, you can download it there or search for the filter on your favorite podcast app and you will find me. Talking more about stimulants, we have the chicha, the alcohol thing, and you have the coca leaf, which you can chew or make into a tea and it gives you a lovely energizing buzz that I did not find to be harsh in the way that some other stimulants like too much caffeine or other things that uh, maybe I shouldn't mention but have at times tried do. But at any rate, I do miss those things and the food and the music and some aspects of the culture down there. Though, as I say, it was a terrible place to try to do business. After there, we ended up, my ex and I, in Medford, Oregon, which is a town of maybe 50, 60,000 people. A lovely, if somewhat boring, city, though close to a quaint, cute, more artsy city that you could travel to if you wanted to go see theater or things like that. And Medford wasn't a bad place to be overall, at least for a little while, if as I say, somewhat bland. We were there. We had a kid. I'm not going to dwell too much on those particular years. There was nothing wrong with them. It was phenomenal to have a child and that whole experience. But just in this moment, I'd rather talk about some other aspect of my life. I should 
definitely, before we wrap up this episode, talk about how it is that I ended up here in the Keys. So we're going to skip over some of the story, and we are going to Toronto, Ontario. For those who don't know, Toronto is a city of about mm, 2.7 million people and a general area of 5 to 6 million depending on how big you draw the circle around what's called the GTA or the Greater Toronto Area. And it was a wonderful place to be, cold in the winter, so very different climate from the one down here, but really awesome culture in a lot of ways. And over the dozen or so years I was there, all of the cultural scenes got better. The restaurants got better. The amount of entertainment options got better. All kinds of cool, interesting things opened up, like bars that were also ping pong salons and adult arcades that were not really for kids at all. Those kind of things. And There were really several waves of food revolutions that went through the place. Maybe you've noticed that I talk a lot about food. It's a big part of life. Waves went through there. When we were there, there was already sushi places everywhere. We moved into a neighborhood called the Annex, which has on one particular strip in perhaps half a mile, you can find seven sushi restaurants. Of those, maybe four or five are really good, and one of them is excellent, and one of them is terrible. You don't want to go there. But there was the sushi revolution that had already happened, and there were lots of great places to get raw fish. I wasn't much of a fan of that until I came to Toronto. And then there was, uh, well, you know, From now on, I'm just going to call the city Toronto, which is what the locals call it. They also had a gourmet, pretty much a gourmet everything revolution that swept through. There was a gourmet burger revolution with a chain that started up called Burger's Priest, which is wonderful, very, very greasy, but lovely. Burgers, though their fries are not very good, which is really one of the biggest culinary disappointments there in Toronto. Very few places did their fries right. I understand that it's part of the Canadian culture to have these soggy, weak, limp fries, and it's part of the tradition there. They have poutine. For those who don't know, this is a cheese curds and gravy top fry dish. And so I guess the idea is your fries are not going to be crispy anyway, given what's poured on top of it. So you might as well make them soft and soggy with oil, but really there's just no other way to put it. They're bad fries in general that you get there in Toronto until a couple different kinds of places popped up, including a wonderful chicken place called Manga that had maybe the best fries in the city and maybe the best fries I've ever had. Very crispy, flavorful, but you still got a lot of potato taste in them. So there was the gourmet burger revolution that went through. There were also a frozen yogurt revolution where they did not just the TCBOI stuff that's always existed, but there were these places where you could, it was a a by the pound situation. You could put all kinds of crazy toppings on your yogurt that you had selected. There was also a macaron thing, not a big fan of those, but for a brief period, those places were everywhere. And there was a bubble tea explosion for a 
while, it seemed like. Uh, at the time, we were living downtown, and in that time, downtown, there seemed to be a new bubble tea place that opened up every few days. Toronto's also a really great city for caffeine. I don't know if this still exists. Maybe it went away after the lockdowns, and we will get to that and the part it played in why I'm here in Florida. But there was a an intersection downtown that had essentially three Starbucks on four corners. One of them was inside a hotel, but nonetheless, just an insane number of coffee places there. And not just Starbucks, I should say. There were a wide variety of really good coffee shops that were one of or part of a small chain. I often went to a place called Dark Horse and Jimmy's, which was, before I left, the normal place where I did my work. I suppose this is as good a time as any to get to that part of the story, the leaving, and Jimmy's in particular. If you're just joining us, this is Matt Asher on Keys Talk 1025 FM or 96.9 FM in the lovely Florida Keys. We are at the part in Toronto where I leave the city, and we're at Jimmy's Coffee, which is a a lovely coffee place with maybe 10 locations or so through the city. Excellent coffee. And the one I went to also had some lovely people who worked there. My way of working, which was not podcasting or a radio show at the time, involved a lot of work at cafes. That was essentially my office. Over the years, I've tried to do work at home. That doesn't really work for me. And certainly, I tried doing my work from home at the beginning of the lockdowns, and that did not work. It failed. I I struggled for a while, actually. My inability to retool myself to work not at cafes, but at home. But at some point, I recognized that I had spent probably 15 years getting myself to a place where working at cafes worked for me. So it wasn't something that I was going to be able to just change overnight. I liken it to imagining that you have a factory that you've been in for 20 years in that building, and someone says, well, you seem to have outgrown this place. Maybe you should just move. That's not a small thing. You've not only built that particular space to have all the machines and things that you need, but you've built your processes around the layout and structure there. And if you go to a completely different building that already exists and is laid out differently, then it's not just a matter of, oh, well, we'll just put the machine over here or there. You have to rework everything because, well, getting back to me, everything was worked around working at cafes. And why would you want to rework everything about how you do your work for something that may or may not last more than, well, from the very outset, it was clear that this was not going to be two weeks, but it was also not clear that it was going to be as long as it turned out to be. So at any rate, working at cafes did work for me. And when things started to shut down, it was bad news. It was also bad news for many, many, many other reasons, which I will get to as time goes on on the radio show. But you're welcome to dig through the archives at mattasher.com and check out some of the podcast episodes. There are a number of them that mention the lockdowns and my own take on that. 
I don't really want to get into that right now, but it was ultimately the reason that I left and uncertainty about how long that would go on. They are in Toronto even now, still not fully open. Florida is, and I am here talking to you and very happy to be doing so, I should say, since this is the episode about me and about my movements around the world, that this is an extraordinary, extraordinarily wonderful place to be uh, once you get used to the warm. And I think I mostly have at this point. There are few places that I've been that are have been as not just warm uh, in terms of the temperature, but warm in terms of the people and the reception that myself and my wife have gotten here in the Florida Keys. I, if you have not visited, I'd highly recommend coming down here. There are tons of things to do both in Key West and all throughout the Keys to uh, from sailing, which is a big part of life down here, swimming, and then a, a wide variety of cultural things in Key West the city itself. Not really a city. It's more a, a town of about 25,000 people. It's actually the third small touristy city that I've lived in. I've lived in a couple others that I'll mention at some point. I didn't mention either of those today, but a wonderful place to be spending time, both Key West and the surrounding areas, and a really nice lifestyle. Some people get here and they get pulled into the too nice lifestyle in terms of what they call the Keys disease, which you come here and you, uh, you know, you indulge a little bit too much in uh, in the alcohol and the partying. But, uh, you know, you can see why that would be attractive to some people. And, and I don't judge. We are just about to run out of time. I need to mention that we have a live show coming up on August 19th at Key West Theater. If you are in the area, really, if you are anywhere where you can get to Key West, and I know that isn't everywhere in the world right now, but it's a lot of places, by all means, come on down. Our very first guest wrote a book about Mer people. Fascinating book, and we are going to have a fascinating conversation about it in front of a live audience, and that will be followed up by a an uncensored Q&A session. Make sure to go right now to moribay.com slash tickets to check it out. For the podcast folks, I'm going to tell a story from my time in Bolivia that is not appropriate for radio, but maybe I can get away with it on the podcast. Go to mattasher.com and download the full episode. Greetings again, and welcome to the Matt Asher Radio Show After Party. Picking right back up, and welcome to the podcast-only listeners. I'm going to tell one of the many not-safe-for-radio stories of my time in South America, and I haven't decided which one I'll do just yet. I'm going to just start and see where this goes. But before that, and as perhaps as a way to provide some content, I think it's worth talking about some of the subtleties of freedom, economic or otherwise. On paper, at least according to places like the Cato Institute, the United States ranks much higher than Bolivia in their index of economic freedom. I can see why. Property rights down there are much more sketch. Bureaucracy for opening a business is stifling. Corruption is rampant. At the same time, though, 
there exist these giant all-cash, no-tax marketplaces where you can get really anything and everything. When we lived there, we bought fresh veggies, raw meat, furniture, and even ducks at the market. And for those who can remember all the way back to the beginning of this episode, those are not the same ducks that I acquired in exchange for a wigwam. Uh, At any rate, you have this place that is, in many ways, not all that free, and socially it's certainly much more uptight. But at the same time, there are places that are more freewheeling than anything you see in the States, and perhaps the same in the same way as uh, Key West. There are lots of services that in theory you aren't allowed to offer, but in practice are offered anyway and largely ignored by the long arm of the law. This Let's just do a story that has to do with one of those places. I should note I better change up a couple details here to protect the innocent, but this really did happen. It it takes place after uh, my ex had left Bolivia, not leaving me, but just going back to the States for a while. I was there alone uh, trying to make the business work for a bit longer. And as I mentioned in the previous section of this podcast slash radio show, that didn't go particularly well, but I was trying to give it a go there. And I was on my own, just me and about a month later, a live-in maid, which I should say, if you are down there as an American, you should let go of any uptightness you have about the idea of hiring someone to live in your home and do all of the household things, because at $80 a month, or at least that's what it cost when I was down there, it's the best thing going. And one of the things that makes third world living, at least for those of us with anything close to a first world budget, really quite nice. At any rate, early on in my solo time in Bolivia, I was able to convince a friend of the family to send out their teenage son to come hang out with me for a couple weeks. We hung out in the city, spent some time in the jungle there where I ate at one point a live frog for the fun of it, which may have been the third dumbest thing I've ever done, right up there with my other decision of what to do to entertain this kid. Uh, He was, at the time of the visit, just turning 18. I took him out to drink, which may or may not have been legal down there, but certainly no one cared. I also took him to the particular kind of bar where all of the cocktail waitresses offered more than just drinks. It was a hole in the wall, the kind of place you wouldn't notice until you really understand the city, just like it might take years in Toronto before you tune in to all of the city's second-floor businesses called spa and realize what they're really offering. At any rate, I took this kid, the one I figured was I was supposed to be showing a good time to, and we went to one of these houses of the night, sat down, and had a drink. The place was loud with sparse furniture and for there, for Cochabamba, fairly expensive drinks. I'd learn later about the custom of buying drinks for the cocktail waitresses as a form of taking the first step, but uh, only after I told uh, Cochabambino about the experience and when not laughing at me, he explained how things worked at these places. That night, though, we both sat awkwardly in the main room for a while, had a couple drinks. At one point, I asked a waitress if they had a deck of cards we could use, to which question I got a no, of course not, and a not at all subtle look that said, you do know where you are, gringo, right? Shortly after that, my 
guest went to the restroom. When he came back, he told me that someone had taken a dump right there in the middle of the floor, a large steaming one. Uh, After that, we paid the bill and left. Guys tend to make bad decisions in their mid-twenties, and I certainly made my fair share of them, along with a handful of some brilliant ones that I'm still benefiting from today. But even back then, I was able to let the universe send me a hint about when I was headed down the wrong path, or even worse, leading someone else in the absolute wrong direction. Before I wrap up the podcast-only part of the show, one more note about the funny dynamic between freedom and what we've come to call capitalism. One of the things I never understood before living in the third world was why corruption was such an intractable problem. Everyone knows places like Bolivia are bathed in corruption. The locals themselves talk about it all the time, but why not just get rid of it? I think part of the answer has to do with the dominant religion there, Catholicism, for whatever reasons that religion seems to be fully compatible with cultures that support corruption. Part of it, though, has to do with finding freedom in unfree places. I mentioned that starting a business down there was a bureaucratic nightmare. That's mostly true, but the more miserable the restrictions, the more pressure to just pay a bribe and go on with your life. Corruption persisted down there because it worked. It worked for the bureaucrats because, of course, they liked power and they loved the bribes. But it also worked for the people paying the bribes in that this was a much faster and cheaper way to get a business started than going through all the official processes to get things done. That's, of course, not to say it worked for them in an absolute sense. It would be much better for business owners and for society overall if you could just pull a license or a permit in 10 minutes for 10 pesos. But the second best option was the system of bribes that they had. So corruption persisted because in the context of arbitrary and basically unlivable rules, it was the escape hatch. If you can think about some ways in which the United States over the past couple of years has gone in the direction of arbitrary rules, maybe you'll understand why we are seeing the signs of widespread corruption at the institutional level here, which uh, always begins with the polarization of law enforcement and the establishment of strict rules for the peasants and unregulated parties at waterfront mansions for the rulers. If you thought 2020 was a rocky ride, just wait until enough of those peasants find their way around the censors at social media and figure out what's really going on there. 